Hey, this is Kelly Whiffen. Thanks for joining us today for the Encounter Church podcast. We all want to live lives of better decisions and fewer regrets. No matter where you are in your spiritual journey, we believe the next 30 minutes can be one of the most helpful and hopeful parts of your week. At the end of the podcast, stay tuned for a couple messages. Thanks again for joining us today. Good morning. Welcome to Encounter Church. My name is Chris Calls. I'm lead pastor here, and I'm thrilled that you are here on this second Sunday of December. Uh, We're in the midst of a series called Light of the World. And today, just to give you a kind of disclaimer, I I really want to change the way you say the word Merry Christmas out the gate. Um, This is kind of one of the most wonderful times of the year, according to the songs that we sing, Um, right? It's happy, it's jolly, it's joyful. Um, There are Christmas classics that we all kind of set aside every single year um, to watch because we love the nostalgia of seeing a movie that we can quote um, our family. We we love uh, National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation, and it's almost a um, a love language between me and my wife, Um, you know, just even when we're talking about Christmas trees, and I'm like... It's, it's not going in the yard, Jenny, right? You know, just this idea, like there's these movie lines you can quote, and it just feels so good. And across the board, right, um, maybe it's Last Holiday with Queen Latifah and her storyline. Maybe it's A Wonderful Life because you love the old throwback black and whites. Like we all have our like movies that we love in the holiday season, and we love those moments where we it turns and all of a sudden that feeling of Christmas hits, and they're like, they have the realization of like, oh, this is what Christmas is really about. It's about, it's about family. It's about, it's about being a giver. It's about like that happiness on the inside. And while all of that feels really good, and while there's enough nostalgia at, around Christmas time to, to kind of to allow the Christmas tree and the lights to shine bright, I want to press in a little bit more because I'm a little bit contrarian. And, and my hope for you this Christmas is not that you would just have a really good feeling. Because quite honestly, that's not enough. Because if you poke a little bit at any of the underlying thesis statements of all of these great Christmas classics and in the Christmas songs that kind of broadcast, I think all you have to do is go Black Friday shopping to realize that it's not wonderful to be a giver. It's stressful to be a giver because everyone else is trying to give too. And I've seen people fight and run over each other in the spirit of trying to be a giver. And, and then if you've ever stepped into a family situation where it's not joyful and wonderful, it's not you want to be home for Christmas. You actually want to be somewhere else perhaps for Christmas, right? Like all of a sudden these little cliche sayings and these feelings that we broadcast around the Christmas season, they don't hold up. Because what do you do when you're not surrounded by family you love? What do you do when you give gifts and people are ungrateful for them? Because what's happening during this time of year, especially coupled with the fact that this is the last month of 2019 and you're probably about to be inundated with um, really non-clever marketing that says, see clearly in 2020, um, stuff like that. You're, you're going to be inundated with this start your life fresh, see things new in 2020. You're starting to think about what you thought about at the beginning of 2019 and what was going to be different and how it was going to be different. And, and yet you're looking in the mirror and you're not seeing those things that you said were going to be different this year. Because this time of year is a reminder 
that sometimes life is complicated, family is uncomfortable and dysfunctional, that there's a lot more pain and understanding than there are presents under the tree. You're reminded that there are people you can't control. Sometimes even you are the person that you can't control. There are expectations that didn't get met or can't be met. There are loved ones that we miss that we don't get to see this holiday season. There are relationships that haven't materialized. There's hopes that haven't come true. There's problems that haven't been solved. There's tensions that are still present. And in the wisdom and the words of my seven-year-old going on 77-year-old daughter, um, there, there are yucks that you have to eat at Christmas because uh, she hates pretty much all things that taste good, and um, it, with the exception of macaroni and cheese. And, um, and, but every holiday season when she's forced at the table, she has to eat something. And it's always yucky. And it's like Christmas is the time where you have to eat yucky things, right? I mean, and that's just not just with the plate. Sometimes that's life too. And my hope for you, just as a full disclaimer, I'm going to try to persuade you. I'm going to try to remind you. I'm going to try to change the way you think about the words Merry Christmas. Because I want you to have more than a feeling this Christmas. I want you to have a foundation. A foundation of hope that can, can carry you through all the ups and downs that not just December brings, but every single month brings. And that, because in the backdrop of the Christmas story and all the brokenness that we all understand and have experienced, that is the very reason that God stepped onto planet Earth. That is the reason we have Christmas, is that there were things we could not fix on our own, and he stepped in to fix them for us. That was why hope was born in a manger, but it didn't die on the cross. And to get there, I want to actually take you on a little bit of a historical journey. Uh, if you like history and you don't believe in Christianity, today is awesome because you're going to get a lot of both. Um, if you're here and you're like, I, I know a little bit of the Christmas story, my hope is you walk away saying, I, don't, I didn't even know that was a part of the Christmas story. And to get you there, I want to take you through this historical journey, teach you a little bit about um, what was going on in that first century, because there's a lot, of, a lot of movement going on that's happening while these people are writing what we now call the New Testament. And what hopefully you walk away with today is that hope can be found in every single day, not just the Christmas day, not because of what's happening in your life but because what's already happened. And out of what's happened, we can have hope no matter what is happening. So to get there, I want to take you and introduce you to a guy named John. John was the youngest of Jesus' followers. Uh, Jesus steps on to um, planet Earth. He's born, manger scene, all the things that you see in the nativity. And over the course of 30 years, he grows. Um, he's most likely a stone or a carpenter, a stone worker or carpenter worker, it's the, the language is a little vague, but he's a tradesman. And in the midst of being a tradesman, for 30 years, he's almost silent. And then at his 30th birthday, somewhere around that window, he steps out and he begins a three-year ministry that forever changes the history of planet Earth and the people that live on it. There is no other name in the entire history of humanity that is instantly recognizable and known outside the name of Jesus. There is no other name Literally, no other name in human history that has been more famous than the name of Jesus. 
Sometimes, unfortunately, because of people who claimed his name but then did stupid wrong things, sometimes that fame was infamy because of his followers, not so much because of him. And yet, in those three years of what's beginning to play out, we can miss how, how short that time frame was. He just had three years. He never wrote down a single thing. He just talked. And most of what was written in the aftermath came from the followers he chose. And so he picks 12, and the youngest is a kid named John who's working in a family business whose brother gets swept up in this thing that Jesus is starting. His cousins get stepped up, swept up in this thing. And all of a sudden, the movement's born. Now, John is one of the last of the original 12 to die. Um, if you fast forward, Jesus is crucified, resurrected in around 33 A.D., um, in the aftermath of what happens, the message of Christianity begins to spread throughout the Roman Empire, who was in um, Israel at the time, is an occupied country. They're controlled by the Roman Empire. Um, the, the people are continually spreading that message. Then a guy named Paul comes on to the scene, who becomes the most prolific writer. A bulk of the books in the New Testament is written by this guy named Paul. And then Christianity continues to spread. And around 60 A.D., um, Peter, the most famous of Jesus' original disciples, he is executed by being crucified upside down. Um, the place that he's executed is now the site of what's called St. Peter's in the Vatican in Rome. And you have, around that same time period, you have Paul, the most famous, most prolific writer-thinker in Christian history um, when it comes to the New Testament. He is uh, most likely beheaded around that same location that Peter is crucified upside down. And so in some ways, in the mid-60s, it was a really dark period because the late mid to late 60s AD, two of the most famous voices of Christianity is snuffed out. And to add insult to injury, around 70 AD, a huge kind of pressure cooker explodes. You see, the Jewish people, because they're occupied, because one of the Romans' favorite things to do were to completely conquer a people and then to enslave them and make them Roman. And so the Romans had constantly been pushing up against this very distinct Jewish culture. And because the Romans believed that Caesar was God, in fact, a lot of the early language of Christianity when it says Jesus is Lord that you would see in the New Testament is actually one of the reasons that they were persecuted by the Roman Empire is because that was a very Roman thing to say, you would say in the course of a conversation, Caesar is Lord. Because the idea was that the ruler in Rome, he was a god. And so now Rome has gotten tired of the Jewish rebellions, and so they've sent an army that slowly have marched through the nation of Israel. They've fought the zealots, which was the name of these rebels. It's kind of like Star Wars set in a different time, in fact. And so like the, you know, the rebellious forces, they were called the zealots. And so here's the zealots there in Galilee, the place where Jesus did a lot of ministry and teaching. And they begin to fight. The Roman legions are pressing up against them, and the zealots start to back up and retreat. And they move ultimately to one of the biggest and best strongholds in the area, a city called Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem, like Rome, was built on a series of hills, not seven like Rome was, but five. And so Jerusalem has, is a really well-defined, well-strategic spot to make your last stand. And so the Roman um, armies begin to march towards Jerusalem. Now, the people in Jerusalem, they've... They've kind of locked themselves into a city wall. They've closed the gates, and they're ready to make a stand. 
About that time, as the Roman generals are marching through, the Roman rulers and armies are moving in, um, something happens in Rome and a new emperor is promoted. And when he's promoted, his son assumes the generalship of the Roman army. His name is Titus. Titus will eventually become a Roman emperor himself when his father passes away. Now, you probably have never heard the name of Titus, but you know a little bit about what Titus does. You see the Colosseum in Rome. He finishes the Colosseum. He's the one who gets to open it. He's the grand opening person. He presides over it. The Colosseum is not what it was called in its day. It was named after his family. And so Titus opens up the Colosseum. Titus is also the emperor when Mount Vesuvius explodes and four cities are covered in ashes. One of them, the most famous, is Pompeii. That happens while Titus is ruling. So Titus is a man who's seen a lot of things. But the thing that Titus is most famous for in history, besides being good-looking, besides being popular with the Roman people, was that Titus was an, a very, very good ruler commander of the Roman armies. He built it up. He turned it into a power force. In some ways, he was, he was like a Dwight Eisenhower kind of building up the U.S. Army in World War II. Like he had this builder approach. And so Titus assumes his first like really big assignment, and he's going to make a point to these rebellious Jewish people who've locked inside the city of Jerusalem, unwilling to surrender. So he comes in and he does what's called a siege, which in the ancient world was essentially shutting down a city so that nothing could go in and nothing could come out. Because there was not refrigerators in those days, what that often meant is that you would starve a people. Sieges were known to get so bad in the ancient world that the people inside of cities being sieged would sometimes turn to cannibalism. This is a different age. But that was the way you won a battle. That's how you stomped out your enemy. You would, you would put the city in a siege so that they would surrender out of starvation. Or they would waste away and you would just kick down the door and finish the job. Now Titus was ruthless. And so Titus wanted to make the point to them that he was going to win no matter what. He began to move dirt, and so this the huge wall, if you were ever to travel to Israel today or see a picture of the Western Wall, that's one of the few remaining portions of the wall that still remain in the ancient, ancient Jewish Jerusalem city. Um, and you were to stand there, you get a sense of how significant the walls were in that time period. Titus moves dirt and starts to build a ramp that gets as high as the city wall all around the city so that he can begin to slowly move his armies to the top of the wall to begin the battle. It gets really dark because the siege lasts about seven months. People begin to starve, and they try to sneak out of Jerusalem. Titus wants to make a point. So what does he do? He he captures all of them, and then he crucifies them. One of the most horrific ways to ever die in human history, because you didn't die from losing blood when you were crucified. You died from suffocation because it was so gut-wrenching, so painful, so brutal on the human body that you would eventually say it's not worth it to breathe anymore and you would just suffocate. Because um, 
if you've ever heard the funny bone, which is like the worst name ever, by the way, for a, a funny bone because it's not funny. Um, but the reason it's called a funny bone is because you've got a major nerve that runs through both your arms and, in fact, through your legs. And the Romans were so sneaky, they were so devious that they would actually, when they crucified, they made it a point for the nails to hit those nerves so that when you moved, it felt like fire coursing through your body. That's why eventually, after all of that exhaustion, you would give up. I mean, it's brutal. So Titus would capture people. He would crucify them right on the wall facing the city of Jerusalem. So people would look up and they would see what would happen if you tried to escape. He was breaking them mentally. Josephus, who's a major historian at this time period, records that 500 people are crucified in one day alone. I mean, imagine you look up. You're, you're a city of people who are terrified. You're hungry and you look up and there are 500 people that you know and love being publicly humiliated to make the point that there's no way you're going to win. I mean, this, this is like ISIS-level brutality in the first century. And then, eventually, after seven months, because of disease that finally starts to break out because of sewage and just no food, they surrender. And they are in a weakened state, and Titus comes in and he decimates them. Josephus estimates, who's probably one of the most famous historians in that time period, that probably what ended up happening was about 1.1 million people died during the siege of Jerusalem. Right? That wasn't too much more than the actual population of Jerusalem at the time. Because Jerusalem was a global city. And so you have over a million people who perished in the course of those seven months. And then, because the Romans were really good at enslaving people, uh, oftentimes in that day, Slavery um, didn't exist based on um, ethnicity. Slavery was really propagated by the conqueror taking the conquered and making them the slaves. And so 97,000 people were taken out of Jerusalem, put in chains, and made to march back to Rome as slaves. In Rome today, if you ever travel there or look on pictures, you'll see in the Roman Forum right beside the Colosseum is a really iconic um, historical um, popular tourist spot called the Arch of Titus. And the Arch of Titus is um, this massive celebration of, of Titus marching into Rome with all the slaves behind him. It's an amazing thing to see. It just celebrates all the, the gold that he recovered, all the victory that he had. And, and you can, to this day, pull it up on, on Google and you can see, the, just and get a sense for how truly devastating Titus's defeat of Jerusalem was. And around 70 AD, he marches back. In August of 70 AD, he defeats them. And over the course of that fall, he returns to Rome. And he's the victor. He's the king. And within 10 years, the last thing that Titus does, in fact, before he leaves Jerusalem, is he walks into the city to the most holy spot, to the temple, and he destroys it. And when he destroys the temple in August of 70 AD, he essentially destroys the Jewish people's identity because their identity was intertwined with the temple. Now, for us, 2,000 years later, we struggle to kind of wrap our minds around one building being the kind of the most essential core portion of an identity. Because even honestly, if tomorrow we woke up and we found out Washington, D.C. had been completely destroyed, we would still not have a sense of what it was like 
as a people to lose your identity. Washington, D.C. being destroyed still wouldn't capture for us the essence of what they felt that day. We've glimpsed it through moments like the Boston Marathon bombing and September 11th, but it, it, we still felt like we were Americans after those. They no longer felt like Jews that day. The city, the people who did escape, the people who did flee, Jerusalem is pretty much desolate. And it's within that 10-year window that John, who fled from probably Jerusalem to a city called Pella, then ultimately to the city of Ephesus, he sits down. He's towards the end of his life. He's, he's overseeing a group of churches within a 50-mile radius of Ephesus. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the first three biographies on the life of Jesus are are bestsellers. They're spreading everywhere. People know them. And as John is traveling, teaching them about his relationship with Jesus, what he saw Jesus do, what he knows about Jesus, they began to hear things they'd never heard, that they'd never read in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And they begin to say to John, John, you have to write this down. You're not going to live much longer, John. We have to know what it is that you know. Like Jesus called John the disciple whom he loved. He was like a little brother. I mean, imagine Jesus is your big brother. Like, this is John. Like, John, you've got to write so that this continues. And so that's why if you ever kind of get into this place where you're like, I'm going to study all four biographies on the life of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. I'm going to compare them word for word and get a sense of their, their tone and the atmosphere around it in the audience. And if you ever deep dive into that, what you'll notice is Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John. John is weird. It's so different. Jesus tells over 30 stories in the course of his ministry. And Matthew, Mark, and Luke, there's not a single story in the book of John. John never, ever, ever talks about Jesus telling a story. One of the most famous things about Jesus' teaching was his storytelling. And yet John never mentions it. Why? Because John's like, Matthew, Mark, and Luke got that covered. They've already spoke to that. I'm going to contribute what no one else has contributed. Matthew and Luke both are written out of a historical place. Matthew follows Jesus. He's one of the original 12. Luke is a historian. He's essentially a kind of a, a equivalent of a Netflix documentary maker of his day. He sets out to make a documentary on the life of Jesus. He researches it, and he puts down to words what we now call the book of Luke. Mark is, um, is mentored uh, by Peter, one of Jesus' most famous disciples. And so Mark reads like an action journal, very much like the personality of Peter. It, it's nonstop. It just is constant movement. But what's interesting is Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they set the frame of Jesus at the beginning with the Christmas story in that season. Matthew and Luke specifically kind of give us the most details of Jesus' birth. So when John sits down, with all the history I've just given you, because I want you to feel the weight of what it would be like to be a man leading a group of churches who are wondering, is this thing going to make it? Is this thing have a chance? Our city is gone. At this point, Titus's brother is now the emperor, and Titus is using that Colosseum. Domination is using that, that Colosseum that his brother opened to murder and to public humiliate Christians. Domination ushers in this wave of Christian persecution that hadn't been seen since Nero a, a couple decades before. Like, this is crazy. 
The last time when Nero was in, Peter and Paul both lose their life. And now Dominician's destroying Christianity around the empire. And John is with all of that sitting down. He's like, how do I unpack all that I have in me? I'll start with the beginning. And in John 1, 1, he doesn't just start with the beginning of the Christmas story. He starts with the beginning of it all. And he begins to unpack the fact of who Jesus is, not just what and when Jesus was born. And then he gets to verse 4 and 5, which are the two verses, because I knew I was going to give you so much history this morning. I don't have time to unpack all that's written, because it's incredibly rich. So I'm just going to take these two sentences to set our final time together. He writes this, in him, speaking about Jesus, was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. That light, the light, shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And um, in the aftermath of World War II, one of the things that has slowly unfolded over the last um, decades is secret archives that have been slowly released. Um, I I love history, as you probably have already detected. Um, And one of the things that came out this year was the BBC, the British Broadcasting Company, uh, released a series of secret archives that was around World War II. And one of the archives that came out was was codenamed Peter Peterkin. That was the the name of this this mission. And the idea of Peter Peterkin was that the BBC, which had um, a tremendous radio broadcast during World War II, had antennas that could actually broadcast into continental Europe. The idea was that they could use the BBC to send coded messages. And so what they would do is at the end of certain radio stations, they would normally, like radio hours, they would play out musical songs for the people to listen. And we still have that kind of on our radio and our television show today, right? And it, was, and it just seemed like innocent. Oh, that's the, the outro for the day. Or listen to this new hit by this band, right? But what the BBC was actually getting was secret recorded messages from the British government. And they would use the songs they selected to transmit coded messages to the European resistance that was still present on the continent fighting against the Nazis. And so they would pick an album, a record, and they would play that record because that record was communicating to the resistance group, hey, we're going to bomb that bridge in Poland tonight. Stay away from it. And so once in a while, um, because Peter Peterkin was a secret operation, sometimes the producer of the radio station would be like, oh, that record's scratched. Grab another one. And in the process, a different bridge would be blown up. So this was a really kind of a interesting experiment, but they would also not just use albums to communicate messages, the host would be given scripts, and sometimes they would say things that they just thought were innocent, that were in fact transmitting a message. So the night of um, June 5th, 1944, which we kind of celebrate um, from an American or Allied Forces standpoint as that night before D-Day, what was said over um, the BBC channel that evening was, Cradle my heart with a, mono- with a monotonous lacquer. It was just said in the course of a conversation um, during a BBC broadcast. And that was a code for the resistance forces to say, hey, D-Day invasion is about to begin. Be prepared. Like, it's really kind of cool spy stuff. And I think when you're reading John, the thing that it's really helpful to understand is that John is writing these words in 
2,000 years removed, we don't see the, the word selection. We don't recognize all the loaded imagery that he's pulling into this thing. And in some ways, this is like a coded message being broadcast to a group of people that's a message of hope. That in their time of darkness, John is writing these words to communicate to them that hope is not lost. That in fact, the reason they can have hope is not what's happening in and around them. It's because of what's already happened inside of them and before them. And so when he writes these words, in, a, in the contrast to death, we're over one million. The Jewish people would not lose that significant of a population until the Holocaust. But it was akin to the Holocaust with the number of their specific percentage of ethnic group that was eradicated. I mean, this is a significant period of death for the Jewish people. What does he do? He describes Jesus' life. In a period of time marked by darkness, he talks about light. In a, in a period of time where the Romans had enslaved out of racial and ethnic superiority the Jewish people and had, had erased them from planet Earth like they were some plight to be removed, John writes about a love and a light that's for all mankind. Do you see that? He says all mankind. And in the midst of personal and national tragedy of him losing his friends over that last decade, when the church has faced more persecution, he, he writes to tell them that the light has overcome the darkness. And he uses a word that I don't want you to miss. He doesn't say in verse 5, he doesn't say to them, oh, the light shined in the darkness. He says the light shines in the darkness. It's still shining. He's making the point that what I'm Declaring to you the hope that we have is not a past tense hope. It's a present tense hope. It's a future expectation hope. It's, a, it's not what's happening in my life. It is what has already happened when Jesus broke into this world that gives me hope. It is, he is still shining. He wants people to know in that first century as he's pinning this biography about Jesus that that they don't have to give up, that he knows that darkness feels like it's broke through, but all you have to do to eradicate darkness is flip on a light bulb because hope and light always breaks through darkness. And he's like, I just want to remind you that Jesus has already won and we've already won too, that we can have that hope. He's still in control. And I don't think that that coded message being sent to those people, this message of declaration of hope, is just for them. I think it's for us too. For those who would say, I'm a Christian. I follow Jesus. I recognize who he is and what he's done for me. That when we say the words Merry Christmas, we are also making a declaration too. We are also saying something when we utter that coded phrase of victory with the words Merry Christmas. It's not a statement of, I hope you have a good year, or I hope you get what you want. It's a declaration that's far stronger. It says that in the midst of the darkness, in the midst of your tragedy, in the midst of your sadness, in the midst of your sickness, your weakness, your loneliness, your uncertainty, the insecurity all around you in your life situation, that yes, all those things are strong, but when we say Merry Christmas, we're saying there is something stronger that is present in us, that is with us and for 
before us that can stand against what is against us. When we say the words Merry Christmas, it is like the BBC broadcasting. Hey, I know it feels dark, but victory is coming. Victory is on its way. Be prepared for what is ahead. When we say Merry Christmas... It's not just a holiday greeting. It's an anthem and a banner of victory. It's a reminder. It's a reminder to ourselves. It's a battle cry from within that he has overcome and that he is still overcoming the darkness. And when I say Merry Christmas, it, I'm not just saying it to you. I'm saying it to me too. And I'm reminding myself and the darkness that I see and the sadness that I feel that he's still bigger. He's still greater. That he can overcome the relational breakdown that you're walking through. That he can overcome the addictions that you find yourself in the midst of that he is stronger and greater than even the financial struggle that you find yourself in that he is alive he's still shining that's john's message and it's an amazing declaration when we say merry christmas we ain't just saying merry christmas we're saying merry christmas there's hope and so if John is trying to communicate. He's like, man, I, I just, you need to know darkness has been defeated. And it really is as simple as just turning on the light bulb. So during Thanksgiving, um, we were um, getting ready for a Thanksgiving meal. And my, my wife makes this um, chocolate chip pound cake that would probably make you at least commit some crime to get. Like, I'm not saying felony, but at least a small misdemeanor. I don't even like chocolate, and it's that good. And so um, Jenny's got this recipe that she'd gotten from a friend of ours, and, um, you know, and I'm pretty sure, like, you trace it back. It probably came from, like, an angel or something, because it's, it's amazing. Um, and so um, Jenny's wanting to teach Ella how to make it, because Ella really likes it. And so they're having, like, this mother-daughter bonding time, and She's like, all right, Ella, I'm going to teach you how to make this cake. And so Ella's in the kitchen with her, and they get all the ingredients together. And, you know, Jenny's breaking the stuff, the eggs, and, you know, all the powdered things. And, and Ella looks at um, my wife and says, Mommy, how does so much yuck make such a great yum? And I was like, I was like, oh my goodness, girl, you have just uttered the wisest, insightful thing I have ever heard you say. One, I'm going to use that against you for the rest of your life because you're going to eat more stuff. But two, that ain't just about recipes. It's what the Christmas story says to us. Because hope is born in a manger, but it doesn't stay there. It eventually grows up, and he lives a perfect, perfect life only to be betrayed by his best friend. You see, John, man, John's so creative in his writing style. He uses the word darkness on purpose because it's a theme throughout the entire book. See, what happens is that in John 13, where Jesus' last night on earth is being recorded, John makes this statement. He's, he's making a throwback, like a really good comedian or a really good storyteller. He makes a throwback with, with his imagery to this passage. And in fact, throughout the book, he keeps coming back to this theme of darkness. That it says that, um, that Judas betrays him, 
in John 13.30 that Judas then goes into the darkness. And it's almost like John, even as he's writing, is trying to call you back to the fact that darkness is constantly pressing against us. And that his best friend betrays him and then walks and sets up what ultimately becomes his arrest. And then he's taken through a series of mock trials and unjust acts and he's crucified. The same way that about 40 years later, some of his loved ones will be crucified outside the city of Jerusalem in a painful humiliation. And as he's been crucified on a hill outside of Jerusalem, the worst yuck in human history has occurred. This perfect man whose message of hope and life and love and peace was squashed out and snuffed out. And yet three days later at the center of the Christian message of the good news of what God can do is the fact that three days, yet, three days later the grave could not hold him and he did something that no person has ever done. He came back to life. And I am just simple enough that even in the midst of loving to learn and even in the midst of having you know, scientific undergrad and two graduate degrees in theology, I'm still simple enough in the midst of all of that to say if a guy can predict his death, die, and then come back to life, that I'm with him every time. It's just like if, if I'm playing flag football and Tom Brady is on the sidelines, he's waiting to get picked, I'm picking him first and we're going to win no matter what because that's my QB, right? Like there's just some things you know, like if you're with that guy, you're probably going to win. And a guy who says, I'm going to die and then comes back from the dead, I'm with that guy, I'm on his team, right? And, and in the midst of that, the biggest yacht became the most incredible young. And that when we say Merry Christmas... I don't want you to miss the central message that's transmitted in that. It's that God is still in the business of shining. He's still in the business of taking your yuck and my yuck and crafting and transforming it in the power of that good news, of the power of that resurrection that broke through. He's still in the power of transforming it into a amazing yum, a yum that transforms not just the... The, the center of our calendar, but that can transform the center of our own lives and the stories about our lives. And that when we say Merry Christmas, we say to all of the yuckiness within and to the yuckiness around us and people that we don't even like, that we make a declaration that even their yuckiness is not too far away from his power to turn into a young. And that I don't know what you brought in today. I don't know what you're walking through. I don't know the inner narrative that you're living out, but I do know that there is something stronger and greater than all of it. And that even today, Jesus is still in the business of taking your yuck and transforming it into a yum. And that it's as simple as just offering it to him and asking him to take it and to forgive you for making it in the first place. And I'd love to tell you more about that. There's an even in the app, there's an icon to unpack a little bit more of that. But my hope is that when you say Merry Christmas this year, that it's, it's a reminder of the narrative that God still takes our yuckiness and turns it into a yum. That as you say Merry Christmas, that you're reminded that in the midst of the complicated, dysfunctional, 
family interactions and the unmet expectations, as you miss loved ones, as you feel the darkness pressed around you, as you're still waiting on relationships to be formed or a baby to be born or a job to come, that you would be reminded that the hope that we have is not because what's happening in our life, but because of what's happened through the altar of life. Let's pray. Thanks again for joining us. Did you know we've created a free app just for you? Whether you are exploring or want to grow in your faith, the app is a great place to start. If you found today's teaching helpful, we hope you'll subscribe or share it with your friends. We look forward to connecting with you on site or online at Encounter Church soon.